Chapter One of Tourmalin's Time Checks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tourmalin's Time Checks by Thomas Anstey Guthrie. Chapter One. Tourmalin's First Check and How He Took It. Peter Tourmalin's probation was at an end, and what was more he had come through the ordeal triumphantly. How he managed this he scarcely knew. No doubt he was aided by the consciousness that the extra hours which he felt himself most liable to misspent had been placed beyond his disposal. At all events, when he met Sophia again, he had been able to convince her that her doubts of his constancy, even under the most trying conditions, were entirely undeserved now he was receiving his recompense. His engagement to Sophia was no longer conditional, but a recognized and irrevocable fact. It is superfluous to say that he was happy. Sophia had set herself to repair the deficiencies in his education and culture. She took him to scientific lectures and classical concerts, and made him read standard authors without skipping. He felt himself daily acquiring balance and seriousness, and an accurate habit of thought, and all the other qualities which Sophia wished him to cultivate. Still, there were moments when he felt the need of halting and recovering his wind, so to speak, in the steep and toilsome climb to her superior mental level, times when he felt that his overtaxed brain absolutely required relaxation of some sort. He felt this particularly one dreary morning late in November, as he sat in his London chambers, staring with lacklustre eyes at the letter he had that day received from his betrothed. For, although they met nearly every day, she never allowed one to pass without a letter, no fond and foolish effusion, be it understood, but a kind of epistolary examination paper, to test the progress he was making. This one contained some searching questions on Buckle's History of Civilization, which he was expected to answer by return of post. He was not supposed to look at the book, though he had, and even then he felt himself scarcely better fitted to floor the tremendous poses devised by Sophia's unwearying care. The day before he had had search questions in English poetry from Chaucer to Mr. Lewis Morris, which had thinned and whitened his hair, but this was, if possible, even worse. He wished now that he had got up his buckle more thoroughly during his voyage on the boomerang. And, with the name, his arrangement with the manager suddenly rose to his recollection. What had he done with that book of time-checks? If he could only get away, if but for a quarter of an hour, away from those sombre rooms with their outlook on dingy house-tops and a murky, rhubarb-coloured sky, if he could really exchange all that for the sunniness and warmth and delicious idleness, which at once seemed so tedious. What a rest it would be! And would he not return, after such an interlude, with all his faculties invigorated, and better able to cope with the task he now found almost insuperable? The first thing was to find the checkbook, which did not take him long, though when he had found it, something made him pause before filling up a check. What if he had been made a fool of? If the Anglo-Australian time-check bank never existed? or had suspended payment. But that was easily settled by presenting a cheque. Why should he not? Just by way of experiment. His balance was intact as yet. 
he was never likely to need a little ready time more than he did just then. He would draw the minimum amount, fifteen minutes, and see how the system worked. So, although he had little real confidence that anything would happen at all, he drew a check and slipped it behind the frivolous and rather incorrect little ormolu clock upon his chimney-piece. The result was instantaneous, and altogether beyond his expectations. The four walls of his room assumed the transparency of gauze for a second before fading entirely away. The olive fog changed to translucent blue. There was a briny breath in the air, and he himself was leaning upon the rail at the forward end of the hurricane deck of the boomerang, which was riding with a slow and stately rise and fall over the heaving swell. That was surprising enough but more surprising still was the discovery that he was apparently engaged in close and confidential conversation with a lovely person, in whom he distinctly recognized Miss Tyrell. "'Yes, I forgive you, Mr. Tourmalin,' she was saying, with an evident effort to suppress a certain agitation. "'But indeed, indeed, you must never speak to me like that again.' Now. As Peter was certainly not conscious of ever having spoken to her at all in his life, this was naturally a startling and even embarrassing beginning, but he had presence of mind enough to take in the position of affairs and adapt himself to them. This was one of the quarters of an hour he would have had, and it was clear that in some portion or other of his spare time he would have made Miss Tyrell's acquaintance in some way. Of course, he ought to have been paid that particular time first but he could easily see from her manner, and the almost tender friendliness which shone in her moistened eyes, that at this period they had advanced considerably beyond mere acquaintanceship. There had been some little mistake, probably. The checks had been wrongly numbered, perhaps, or else they were honoured without regard to chronological sequence, which was most confusing. Still, he had nothing to do but conceal his ignorance as well as he could, and pick up the loose threads as he went along. He was able, at all events, to assure her that he would not, if he could help it, incur her displeasure by speaking to her, like that, in future. "'Thanks,' she said. "'I know it was only a temporary forgetfulness, and—and and if what you suspect should prove to be really true. Why, then, Mr. Tourmalin, then of course you may come and tell me so.' "'I will,' he said. "'I shall make a point of it.' Only, he thought to himself, She'll have to tell me first what I'm to tell her. And in the meantime, she said, let us go on as before, as if you had never brought yourself to confide your sad story to me. So he had told a sad story, had he? He thought, much bewildered, for, as he had no story belonging to him of that character, he was afraid he must have invented one, while, of course, he could not ask for information. "'Yes,' he said, with great presence of mind, "'forget my unhappy story. Let it never be mentioned between us again. We will go on as before, exactly as before.' "'It is our only cause,' she agreed. "'And now,' she added, with a cheerfulness that struck him as a little forced, "'suppose we talk of something else?' Peter considered this a good suggestion, provided it was a subject he knew a little more about, which, unhappily, it was not.' "'You never answered my question,' she reminded him. He would have liked, as ministers say in the house, previous notice of that question, but he could hardly say so in so many words. "'No,' he said, "'forgive me if I say that it is a—a a painful subject to me.' "'I understand that,' 
she said gently. It was more than he did. But tell me only this. Was it that that made you behave as you did? You are sure you had no other reason? If I said I had, thought Peter, she will ask me what it was. I will be as frank as possible, Miss Tyrell, he replied. I had no other reason. What other reason could I have had? I half fancied, but I ought to have seen from the first that, whatever it was, it was not that. And now you have made everything quite clear. I am glad you find it so, said Peter, with a touch of envy. But I might have gone on misunderstanding and misjudging, putting you down as proud and cold and unsociable or prejudiced, but for the accident which brought us together, in spite of your determination that we should remain total strangers. It was an accident which had made them acquainted, then. He would draw the cheque which contained that episode of his extra time sooner or later, but it was distinctly inconvenient not to have at least some idea of what had happened. A fortunate accident for me, at all events, he said, with a judicious recourse to compliment. It might have been a very unfortunate one for poor papa, she said, but for you. I do believe he would have been quite inconsolable. Peter felt an agreeable shock. Had he really been fortunate enough to distinguish himself by rescuing the judge's fair daughter from some deadly peril? It looked very like it. He had often suspected himself of a latent heroism which had never had an opportunity of being displayed. This opportunity must have occurred, and he have proved equal to the occasion in one of those extra hours. I can quite imagine that he would be inconsolable indeed, he said gallantly. Fortunately, I was privileged to prevent such a calamity. Tell me again exactly how you did it, she said. I never quite understood. Peter again took refuge in a discreet vagueness. Oh, he replied modestly, there is not much to tell. I saw the, um, danger, and knew there wasn't a moment to lose, and then I sprang forward, and, well, you know the rest as well as I do. "'You only just caught him as he was going up the rigging, didn't you?' she asked. "'So it was the judge he had saved, not his daughter.' Peter felt a natural disappointment, but he saw the state of the case now. A powerful judicial intellect overstrained, melancholia, suicidal impulses. It was all very sad, but happily he had succeeded in saving this man to his country. "'I ventured to detain him,' he said, considerately seeing that he was, um, rather excited. "'But weren't you afraid he would bite you?' "'No,' said Peter, pained at this revelation of the judge's condition. "'That possibility did not occur to me. In fact, I am sure that, um, though the strongest intellects are occasionally subject to attacks of this sort, he would never so far forget himself as to, um, bite a complete stranger.' "'Ah,' she said, you don't know what a savage old creature he can be sometimes. He never ought to be let loose. I'm sure he's dangerous. Oh, but think, Miss Tyrell, remonstrated Peter, unmistakably shocked at this unfilial attitude toward a distinguished parent. If he was, um, dangerous, he would not be upon the bench now, surely. She glanced over her shoulder with evident apprehension. How you frightened me, she said. I thought he was really there but I hope they'll shut him up in future, so that he won't be able to do any more mischief. You didn't tell me how you got hold of him. Was it by his chain or his tail?' Peter did not know, and, besides, 
it was as difficult for him to picture himself in the act of seizing a hypochondriacal judge by his watch-chain or coat-tail as it was for him to comprehend the utter want of feeling that could prompt such a question from the sufferer's own daughter. "'I hope,' he said, with a gravity which he intended as a rebuke, "'I hope I treated him with all the respect and consideration possible under the, um, circumstances.' "'I'm sorry that that remark appears to amuse you,' for Miss Tyrell was actually laughing, with a merriment in which there was nothing forced. "'How could I help it?' she said, as soon as she could speak. "'It is too funny to hear you talking of being regretful and considerate to a horrid monkey.' "'A monkey?' he repeated involuntarily. "'So it was a monkey that was under restraint, and not a judge of Her Majesty's Supreme Court of Judicature.' a discovery which left him as much in the dark as to what particular service he had rendered as ever, and made him tremble to think what he might have said. But apparently, by singular good fortune, he had not committed himself beyond recovery, for Miss Tyrell only said, "'I thought you were speaking of the monkey, the little wretch that came up behind papa and snatched away all his notes, the notes he had made for the great case he tried last term, and has to deliver judgment upon when the courts sit again.' Surely he told you how important they were, and how awkward it would have been if the monkey had escaped with them, and torn them into pieces, or dropped them into the sea, as he probably would have done but for you. "'Oh, ah, yes,' said Peter, feeling slightly crestfallen, for he had hoped he had performed a more dashing deed than catching a loose monkey. "'I believe your father—Sir John,' he hazarded. Sir William, of course, thank you, did mention the fact, but it really was such a trifling thing to do. Papa didn't think so, she said. He declares he can never be grateful enough to you. And whatever it was, she added softly and even shyly, I, at least, can never think lightly of a service which has, has made us what we are to one another. What they were to one another? And what was that? A dreadful uncertainty seized upon Peter. Was it possible that, in some way he did not understand, he was engaged to this very charming girl, who was almost a stranger to him? The mere idea froze his blood, for if that was so, how did it affect his position towards Sophia? At all hazards he must know the worst at once. "'Tell me,' he said, with trembling accents, "'I know you have told me already, but tell me once more.' precisely what we are to one another at present. It would be so much more satisfactory to my mind, he added in a deprecatory tone, to have that clearly understood. I thought I'd made it quite clear already, she said, with the least suspicion of coldness, that we can be nothing more to one another than friends. The relief was almost too much for him. What a dear, good, sensible girl she was! How perfectly she appreciated the facts! "'Friends!' he cried. "'Is that all? Do you really mean we're nothing more than friends?' He caught her hand in the fervour of his gratitude, and she allowed it to remain in his grasp, which, in the altered state of things, he found rather pleasant than otherwise. "'Ah!' she murmured. "'Don't ask me for more than I have said, more than I can ever say, perhaps.' Let us be content with the remaining friends, dear friends, if you like, but no more. I will, said Peter promptly. I will be content. Dear friends, by all means, but no more. 
"'No,' she assented. "'Unless a time should come when—' "'Yes,' said Peter, encouragingly, as she hesitated. "'You were about to say a time when—' Her lips moved. A faint flush stole into her cheeks. She was about to complete her sentence, when her hand seemed to melt away in his own, and he stood, grasping the empty air by his own mantelpiece. The upper deck, the heaving bows, the blue seaboard, Miss Tyrell herself, all had vanished, and in their stead were the familiar surroundings of his chamber, the grimy London house-fronts, and Sophia's list of questions lying still unanswered upon his writing-table. His fifteen minutes had come to an end, the cheque was nowhere to be seen, the minute-hand of his clock had not moved since he last saw it, but this last circumstance, as he saw on a reflection, was only natural, for otherwise the time-deposit would have conferred no real advantage, as he would never have regained the hours he had temporarily foregone. For some time Peter sat perfectly still, with his head between his hands, occupied in a mental review of this, his initial experience of the cheque-book system. It was as different as possible from the spell of perfect rest he had anticipated, but had it been unpleasant on that account? In spite of an element of mystification at starting, which was inevitable, he was obliged to admit to himself that he had enjoyed this little adventure more than perhaps he should have done. With all his attachment to Sophia, he could hardly be insensible to the privilege of suddenly finding himself the friend, and more than that, the dear friend, of so delightful a girl as this Miss Tyrell. There was a strange charm, a peculiar and quite platonic tenderness, about an intimacy of this peculiar and unprecedented nature, which increased at every fresh recollection of it. It increased so rapidly, indeed, that almost unconsciously he drew the cheque-book toward him, and began to fill up another cheque with a view to an immediate return to the boomerang. But when he had torn the cheque out, he hesitated. It was all quite harmless. The most severe moralist could not convict him of even the most shadowy infidelity towards his fiancée, if he chose to go back and follow up a purely retrospective episode like this, an episode which interested and fascinated him so strongly. Only, what would Sophia say to it? Instinctively he felt that the situation, innocent as it was, would fail to commend itself to her. He had no intention of informing her, it was true but he knew that he was a poor dissembler. He might easily betray himself in some unguarded moment, and then—no, it was vexing, no doubt, but upon the whole it was wiser and better to renounce those additional hours on board the boomerang altogether, to allow this past that never had, but only might have been, to remain unsummoned and unknown for ever. Otherwise, who could tell that, by gradual assaults, even such an affection as he had for Sophia, might not be eventually undermined. But this fear, as he saw the next moment, was almost too extravagant to be seriously taken into account. He felt nothing, and never could feel anything, but warm and sincere friendship for Miss Tyrell, and it was satisfactory to know that she was in no danger of mistaking his sentiments. Still, of course, there was always a certain risk, particularly when he was necessarily in ignorance of all that had preceded and followed the only colloquy they had had as yet. At last he decided upon a compromise. He would not cash that second cheque for the present, at all events. He would reserve it for an emergency, and only use it if he was absolutely driven to do so as a mental tonic. Perhaps Sophia would not compel him to such a necessity again. He hoped, at least he thought she would not. 
So he put the unpresented cheque in an inner pocket, and set to work with desperate energy at his examination paper. Although his recent change must have proved less stimulating to his jaded faculties than he had hoped, since Sophia, after reading his answers, made the cutting remark that she scarcely knew which he had more completely failed to apprehend, the purport of his author or that of the very simple questions she had set him. Peter could not help thinking, rather ruefully, that Miss Tyrrell would never have been capable of such severity as that. But then Miss Tyrrell was not his fiancée, only a very dear friend, whom we would, most probably, never meet again. End of chapter 1